Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. Well, church, hello. It's, uh, it's a wonderful blessing for me to be here to share God's word with you. Um, I really want to thank the elders for uh, inviting me to, to speak. And now and then I do get to touch base with Pastor Marv and, and Sheon to find out what's going on with your church. And I'm always encouraged to hear God's gracious work that he's doing with you. And, and it's a good work. And so I'm really thankful for that. So as we read this afternoon, this passage of scripture that we've taken from the Gospel of Luke, we're continuing on with the the series of a beautiful narrative, and we're looking at the life and the identity and the ministry of Jesus Christ as it's given to us from, from Luke's account of the Gospel. And we just read the passage of scripture talking about this centurion and, and his faith. Now, I want to give us sort of the backstory leading up to this scene. Um, Jesus has just finished uh, giving his greatest message ever. Uh, he's preached the Sermon on the Mount. And, and you'll see that in, in, in the prior chapters of Luke. And in this sermon, he, Jesus is teaching his, his listeners to, to love their enemies. He's telling them to, to do good to those who hate them to bless those who curse them, to pray for those who abuse them. Now, Jesus' countrymen are actually under Roman occupation, so they most likely would have experienced this list of abuse from their enemy, the Roman soldiers. And yet, instead of telling his listeners to retaliate with violence or hatred, Jesus is telling them to be like God, to love, to bless, and to pray. And so he finishes this marvelous sermon, and and he moves, he travels north to to this town called Capernaum. And some of Jesus' disciples have come from, from Capernaum. That's their hometown. It's a fishing town. But what is it known for? It's, it's known for being densely populated with Gentiles, and specifically the Roman uh, soldiers. And so Luke ushers us into this scene right now where a distressed Roman centurion is sending Jewish elders to petition for his slave. And what is Jesus going to do? What does he do? He, he actually obliges with this odd request. It's an odd request. You have Jewish elders petitioning on behalf of their own enemy, a Roman soldier. I mean, he, Jesus just finished preaching a sermon about loving your enemies. What better way to practice what he preached than to actually go ahead and respond to this request? And, and this is where you see Jesus moving forward, moving towards them. Now, we have to sort of see the character and the oddity 
of this Roman centurion. He's not a, a, a normal Roman soldier. And, and the reason I say that is, if you, if you kind of look at the text, you'll see some of the things that he did didn't really align with the occupying forces of Rome. One of the things that we can say about this Roman soldier is that though he's part of the occupying Roman army, he built a synagogue and made the conquered people flourish. He was a military officer, but he's engaging in civilian affairs. He's dialoguing with the Jewish people. He's interacting with the people. He is a Gentile, yet he builds a Jewish place of worship. He killed people in his line of work. That was his job. But here he is, he's petitioning for the life of his servant. Now, slaves were a commodity in, in Jesus' time. They were a use and throw type of, uh, you know, uh, commodity. Uh, they were replaceable. But he's not treating his slave like that. He was an unbeliever, and yet he's heard of Jesus. See, this man had no covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not entitled to receive a miracle from the living God. He had no right to God's blessing. For all our purposes, he was an outsider to God's promises. And yet, what you see is that he is so receptive to Jesus, more so than his Jewish neighbors. And you see him and his, his attitude towards the Lord Jesus. Um, we see that to top this off, to make things even more dramatic, you have Jewish elders who are coming and presenting his resume to Jesus and telling him, look, he's done all these good works. Jesus, you owe him a response. You have to respond to this guy. He's worthy. That's the word that they use. He's worthy for you to do this for him. Now, we know that Jesus never you know, did anything because of the merit of someone. He did it because of the sheer mercy of who God is. But if we sort of backtrack and we, we kind of look at the attitude of, of this man, this, this tension that this, the scripture presents to us, that Luke presents to us, and the tension is this. You have a man who is part of a occupying military force who is, who is suppressing the people and yet being in line, being affiliated with them, he is building a, a place of worship out of his own resources for the people he's conquered. He's showing so much care and attention to his slave, and in every respect, he's an outsider to receiving God's promises. But somehow, we can come to a place to, 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 to reason that perhaps he may be entitled to receiving God's Abrahamic blessing. Now, the Abrahamic blessing was when God blessed this man, Abraham. He said, you know what? I will bless those who bless you. And I will dishonor, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. But irrespective of what it was that moved Jesus, we, we, we have this, this, this narrative that is being presented that, you know what? Jesus is still going forward to do this for this man. He's still moving forward. And now, we want to listen and, and, and catch and ask ourselves this question, what made this man's faith so marvelous? Like, why would Jesus be so impressed with him? The only other time that Jesus actually marveled in the gospel account was the, at the level of unbelief of, of the people from his own hometown. 
And yet here is an unbeliever, somebody who has no relationship with the, the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's marveling at this man's faith. Now, what is it that made this guy's faith so great? Um, we can look at his attitude. You know, he says in, in this passage of scripture, he, he says this to Jesus. He says, you know, um, he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. He is so humble not to presume that Jesus would come to his house. See, the culture of this time was that the Jewish people believed if, if, a, if a Jew went into a Gentile's house, they became ceremonially unclean. And, and this guy takes all the precautions to tell Jesus, you know what, I don't want you to become ceremonially unclean. I don't want to put you in a place of discomfort. And I'm, I'm taking all the effort to make sure that that doesn't happen. He's, he's not presuming on God to owe him anything. And that's his generosity. That's his, his mindset. And it's, it's so interesting that you look at how the Jewish elders present him to Jesus and say that he's worthy, but look at his own self-assessment. He says, I'm not worthy. He's not presuming on God to owe him anything. That's his attitude. How many of us, when we, when we pray, we, we think, you know, God, I have A, B, and C that I need from you. And you remember, I did, you know, E, F, G in our prayers. This guy wasn't like that. He didn't, he didn't do that. Um, he could have pulled rank and authority, and he could have dominated a response from Jesus Christ, saying that, hey, you've come into my territory, and you have to do this for me. I'm commanding you to do this for me. He didn't do that. He could have bargained with Jesus and said, look, repay me for all the good that I've done for this nation, for your people. He didn't do that. He didn't, he didn't demand, he didn't dominate, and he didn't bargain. He came and he just pretty much said, you know what, I am putting myself out there, Jesus, and asking for your sheer mercy. Do this for me. Totally different attitude. And look at what his faith, what made his faith so marvelous. One, we see what he does. He tells Jesus, in his submission. Jesus, you don't have to come to be physically there to heal my servant. I don't need to see you physically heal my servant in order for me to believe. I can believe without seeing. Okay, that's the first thing that he's telling Jesus. I can believe without seeing. See, his life experience has taught him that being in a place of authority, when he tells his servants to do something, he doesn't have to micromanage them. He doesn't have to be there physically to watch and make sure that things are done. He knows it's going to get done because he said so to do it. They, were, they had to obey. They will do it. And so he reasons with himself and thinks, you know what, if I have that kind of authority, Jesus, all you have to do is say the word and it's going to get done. And I don't have to be there. You're a man of authority. I don't have to be there to see it with my physical eyes to know that you're going to heal this man. That's what he's telling Jesus. I don't need to. See, his faith was, was an expression that is grounded in his belief in Jesus' certainty. 
regardless of what he sees or knows. See, he doesn't know what the future holds for him. He doesn't even know what Jesus is going to respond to him. But he's just completely putting himself out there and saying, I'm trusting you, Jesus. Do this for me. Do this for me. Now, here's the second thing that he does. He's confessing with his lips what he believes Jesus can do. See, being in the Roman army and wearing that uniform, his words had authority and power. Things got done when he said it. If you didn't obey, there were consequences. And so he knew that. And so he reasons in his mind and he says, you know what, if I, a man of, of a physical stature, I have, I have authority over people, shouldn't Jesus, who we look to and, 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 and understand to be a man of authority, have, have authority over divine matters of life and death? Shouldn't he have authority over sickness and well-being? This is what he's reasoning. And that's what he's telling you when he's saying this. Jesus, just say the word and it will be enough. You could heal by just speaking the word. Just command healing. It will happen. I've commanded servants and they've done it. You have authority, divine authority. You know, in in Luke's account, when you look back, when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the interesting thing that the scripture tells us is that people, Jewish people, were, were, were making their way to touch Jesus because power was going out from him. And they were being healed of their diseases. Look at this man's faith. He's not even asking Jesus to come and physically lay hands on this man, on his servant. Look how marvelous his faith is. He's saying, I don't even need to see you do it. I don't even need you to have you touch this man. You have authority, Jesus, to speak healing, command it, and it will happen. That's what he's saying. See, the work of his faith is witnessed by the words of his mouth. The work of his faith is witnessed by the word of his mouth. He's confessing what he believes. So you have this this nice story. It's presented to you. You know, where does that leave us? You know, what does this narrative, what does this do for us? What are we supposed to take away from this? I mean, I read it and I'm like, okay, I understand, okay, Jesus has authority, that's awesome. I understand, okay, this guy's humble. He's, he's you know, he's, you know, maybe life has, has taught him things. But where does that leave me? Where does that leave me? Um, some of the things that I like about scripture is that there's so many different personalities and, and it's very honest. The Bible is very honest with how people think and reason and what they say. And one of the things that I really appreciated about uh, a, a famous Bible character by the name of Gideon was, was his honesty and transparency in asking God directly some of the things that troubled him. You know, he saw his country being pillaged by, by enemies, and, and here he's having a candid conversation with, with God, and he, he doesn't even know it's God, and he, and he says this to, to God. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers reaccounted to us saying that did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? In colloquial terms, what he's saying is, I've been told all my life that the God that we believe in is a God of miracles, but I ain't seeing any miracles, man. Where is this God of miracles? Right, that's what he's just, he's just being honest. 
It's just putting it out there. It's like, yeah, he's a miracle working God. We sing he's a miracle working God. We sing God is a God who is our great physician. He's a healer. Where is he? Where is he? And you know, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. I'm a man waiting for physical healing for my own body, myself. Okay? And I've had moments of, of discouragement, of despair. And every time I go back and I'm praying to God, you know, I'm not being healed. Why? What's going on? And God always points me back to scripture to assure me of what he's doing and what he wants to do. And, and no greater comfort do I get than a man by the name of Abraham who had to wait 25 years for the fulfillment of God's word in his life. Now, we can read that scripture. It's taken from Romans 8, 4, verses 18 to 21. And read what it says about Abraham. See, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. God told him. So shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now here's the, here's the part that we want to focus on. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. See, some of us, maybe you're like me, you, you, know, you pray for healing and, and healing doesn't happen. It's not immediate. And, then, and, you, and you come to reason, okay, well, maybe it's not in God's will and you throw in the towel. You know, but I'm, I'm looking at this passage of scripture and I'm thinking to myself, and I'm asking this journey, in my journey I'm asking this question, did God tell you no to me? Because when I look at Abraham, God told him something and said it's going to happen. And Abraham is looking at his circumstances, he's looking at his body and he's like, mm, it looks dead. It looks pretty dead. He's looking at his wife and he's like, yeah, she's, she's barren. But circumstances wasn't dictating what he believed. In fact, scripture is telling us what he was doing while he was waiting. He wasn't just waiting with his hands thrown up in the air saying, okay, well, it happens when it happens. No, he was doing something. And it's very specific what he was doing. Scripture is saying that he did not waver with unbelief. He did not let his circumstances dictate what he believed, but quite the opposite. He let the promise of God lead him to a place where he kept giving glory to God, praising God, telling God who he is in Abraham's life. Okay? That's what made him the man of such great faith because this is what made his faith grow stronger while he waited those 25 years. Now, I know some of us, you know, having said this, you'll, you'll, you'll come and, and tell me, you know, but my theology tells me that, you know, God is not obliged to, to heal. I get that. I get that. I hear you. But consider where I am coming with my theology, and, and it's not different. Everything in scripture that I've done in, in reading the account of who Jesus Christ is, in the gospel, every time somebody came to Jesus for healing, he never said no. Not once. You know, the leper, after, after he preaches a sermon on the mount, a leper comes to him and says, Jesus, if you're willing to heal me, and he says, I'm willing. And so, I've come, come to a place where, you know, instead of, Allowing circumstances to dictate 
and, and make me reason to say that, you know what, it's not going to happen. I'm coming to a theology that tells me of the nature of the character of Jesus Christ in Scripture again and again reminding me that this Jesus is a God who exalts himself in showing his mercy. This is a God who, who longs to be gracious and compassionate to me. And so my heart is, I want to be like the centurion and just put myself out there. And I just throw myself at the mercy of Jesus. You know what? This is who he is. This is what scripture is telling me, who he is. And so I'm not going to dominate, I'm not going to demand, and I'm not going to bargain. I'm just going to be completely at his mercy. See, Abraham, the cool thing about Abraham is his story just doesn't end with, with the promise. Okay? And so I want us to consider something while we're waiting for God. Okay? And you're waiting on God for him to act in our lives. Um, consider what God is doing while you are waiting for him. Okay? And one of the things I want you to consider is that perhaps God is broadening your faith beyond your request. Okay? God is broadening your faith beyond your request. What do I mean by that? Well, Abraham's story doesn't end when, when you know, Isaac came into his life. You know, what, there he is. Abraham, he is here. Oh, uh, Isaac is here. The climax is done. My faith has come to its end. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. In fact, what you see is that in these 25 years of waiting, that God was actually preparing Abraham for the real test that was to come after Isaac arrived on the scene. And you'll see that in Genesis 22, this is the unfolding and the climax of Abraham's great faith. See, in Genesis uh, 22.5, Abraham confesses with his mouth what he was going to do with, with Isaac to his servants. He tells them, I and my son will worship the Lord and return. See, he, he had a lifestyle of worshiping and praising God these 25 years that when God tells him, I want you to go and sacrifice Isaac on that altar, he is reverting back to what he was trained by God to do. He's confessing by faith what is going to take place, that God is going to do this. I'm going to come back. I'm going to worship God with my son. I'm going to come back. That's what he tells his servants. Then he gets to the point where he's tying up his son and he's ready to put a knife through his heart. And his son asks him a question, uh, Dad, where's the lamb? Uh, you're tying me up. Where's the lamb? And he, he says, God will provide the lamb. 25 years of being trained in this way to come to this point, to be able to make that statement of faith and to demonstrate it without failing. And this is what impressed God. He looks at Abraham and he says, I know you love me. Because Abraham's faith was such that he knew that both him and his wife were good as dead. He knew that it was only by the finger of God that he conceived Isaac. And he knew that if God had given Isaac in fulfillment of what he told him, if God was asking for Isaac as a sacrifice, he knew God was going to give him back. And that's exactly what happened. God gave him back. Exactly as he told his servants, exactly as he told Isaac, it happened. God gave him a lamb. Right? So, consider 
while you are waiting for your request, that God has something beyond what you are asking for, and he's preparing that for you, that you will have to engage in your faith at that point. See, please understand one thing. I'm not, I'm not putting it out there to say that, you know, you need, you're, you're, not, you're not getting what you're praying for because you don't have enough faith. Please don't get that. Don't take that message from here. The Bible says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. There is no faith that you can conjure up in yourself that is going to make things happen, okay? The scripture doesn't teach that. But God does expect responsibility in our exercising our faith. We are commanded to exercise our faith, okay? God is the one who gives us faith, but he is commanding us to exercise faith. So please, come to that place where you ask God, you know what, give me that faith to, to step out and do the things that I need to do for you and, and teach me how to exercise it. But don't sit here, don't go away from here thinking, you know, I don't have this. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the right way to think about this, okay? Your, your, your God, our God, is the one who gives us the faith that we need to operate in. So go and ask him. The second thing that God does as we are waiting for him is this. He's stripping away our worldly dependencies. You know, it's, it's in the place of desperation. It's in the place of, of wanting and not being able to receive. Do we look for God to do great and mighty things? You know, uh, the Lord's Prayer, we, we pray that verse, you know, give us this day our daily bread. You know, I can be very honest with you. That, that verse had literally no relevance to Western Christianity, especially in the time of COVID, because our grocery store was packed with food, okay? Maybe some of you were praying, God, I pray I can get that ply of toilet paper in the grocery store, but we weren't praying the prayer of food. Give me food, right? But think about this. There were people in this world who are day laborers. And if they didn't work, they couldn't feed their families. And in a lockdown situation, they weren't getting paid. For them, this prayer was critical for their survival. And I know instances where God has delivered for them in those instances. This is the place that God is taking us to, to say that, you know what? Stop depending on man, stop depending on your government, stop depending on whatever it is of this earth that you think is going to solve your problems. You need to look at Jesus Christ. Number three, God is training me to persevere in prayer. Um, one thing that we know with prayer is that it's not gonna change God. You're not going to convince God with your prayers to change his mind. He already knows what you're going to ask before you ask. No, prayer is the, the platform that, that allows God to change me. And the more we engage in it, the more we're transformed by it. And what God wants in this time of persevering prayer is that he wants us. He wants all of us. And so God may be saying, you know, wait, because I want you. You're, you're asking a request, but I want you. Intimacy, time, alone, together. So consider that. And finally, God is directing us, instructing us to know him more through his word. See, this journey of life is, is, is very personal. And, and scripture tells us, you know, we are commanded to work out our own salvation. It's a personal salvation. It's a different experience for all of us. But we have the same common goal. 
And that common goal is we're striving to know Jesus Christ in a very personal and unique way. And He wants to make Himself known to you and me. And so consider that while you're waiting on God that this is what He's doing. He is, he's, he's, he's training you. He's building you up in your faith to, to reach beyond what you think is what you need because there are other things that are coming your way which you have no idea. You're not even prepared for, but he's preparing you in the time of waiting. Number two, he's stripping away your worldly dependencies. He's taking every single thing that has been a crutch to you so that you start running with your own two feet, trusting in him. Number three, he's training you to spend more time in intimacy with him. He wants that. And four, as the Apostle Paul says, I strive to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what he wants for us. So, so church, let us press into our God. Let us press into our God. If this narrative is telling of who this Jesus is, it's telling us that he is a God who is, 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 is blessed with humility. He is a God who is blessed with us taking steps outside of our comfort zone, trusting him, believing him, Take that step of faith and see what He will do. See how He will respond. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You. Again, You remind us through Your Word that it's not in us, nothing in us that is going to be able to achieve the great things that You have called us to do for Your kingdom. Apart from You doing that work in us, Lord, we are left ourselves and it amounts to nothing and we pray right now Lord that we would be able to come and seek after you with a heart that is genuine and that is willing whatever it is that you have before us Lord that we would walk in it and we would trust you in this journey of our salvation that it's just not a prayer of, of believing to be saved but it's an intimacy of relationship that begins day by day with you. So would you help us, Holy Spirit of God? Would you remind us, would you quicken our hearts to, to, to have great faith to believe? For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.